Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. With me today are... David Emmett, uh, you could follow me at Moto Matters. Neil Morrison, you can follow me at Neil Morrison 87 on Twitter. And Steve English, and you can follow me at Steve English GP on Twitter. And I'm Tony Goldsmith, and you can follow me at Tony Goldsmith GP on Twitter. But before we get started today, I would just like to remind all our listeners that you can find us on Facebook at Facebook Paddock Pass Podcast and on Twitter at the Paddock Pass Pod. And uh, could we ask that uh, you leave us a review on iTunes as it really does help other listeners find the show. Okay, gentlemen, I think today we're going to get talking about uh, MotoGB testing. Uh, We're quite fortunate that um, Steve and... Neil will, were at some of the testing and be interesting to see your thoughts, guys, on uh, how you thought it went um, with regards to the, the Michelin tyres whilst you were down there. Yeah, well, for me, Tony, I think one of the biggest surprises for me was just seeing how the teams have already adapted to the tyres compared to what we saw when we, when we went to Monday tests last year or even the Valencia test. I think we went to Le Mans and we stayed there to watch Suzuki, Aprilia and uh, another team uh, have a Michelin test after the race and just to see just the difference for how the teams were approaching it how they were setting the bikes up it was a, a very marked difference compared to just last year whenever they got their first tests on the tires when you talk to the engineers they've already said that they figured out basically everything that they need to do to how in how to get the best out of the, out of the tires so things like suspension geometry they're now just at the point of fine tuning it. So by by the time we get to Qatar, Argentina, and Austin, they'll have three races of data. So once we get to Europe, I think everyone will be fairly well honed into the the settings that they need. But at the moment, because everyone's relatively close to where they need to be with the setup, we're seeing some fluctuations in times. Like Honda was really quick in Phillip Island, struggled for one lap pace at the other tests. We saw Lorenzo strong at Sepang and Qatar, but struggle at Phillip Island. So we're still seeing it where you're going to have fluctuations in performance where from one round to the next, one bike is going to be more suited to the track and they could have strong results just until we really get uh, get down to having everything as you wanted for uh, for your setup. It was interesting from, particularly in Sepang, it looked uh, as though Michelin had made some great strides forward with the front tyre. And then um, since we moved on to... Qatar and uh, Phillip Island. It, it seemed as though the feedback from the riders was was not so positive on the on the tyres. What were your thoughts on that, David? Yeah, I mean, it, they're certainly still looking for. Um, uh, well, this is the thing that they're still Michelin have got to have still got a lot of work to do to actually figure out the final uh, details. I mean, I would reckon they're probably about you know ninety five, ninety six percent of the uh, of the ballpark, but there's still a lot of um, uh, uh, there's still a lot of question marks about exactly how to uh, about which tyres are going to work where and all the rest of it in the different different conditions. Uh, I think you saw a lot of uh, crashes on the Friday at Phillip Island, where or the uh, was it the Friday? I can't remember. But anyway, the last day at Phillip Island, there were a number of crashes, uh, especially as people try and go a little bit uh, faster, but also as the conditions change a little. So it's. Uh, um, yeah, I mean they're a lot. They're they're certainly a lot closer. And I think uh, Neil, you spoke to uh, uh, some of the um, 
uh, some of the Michelin people at, uh, at Qatar. And I mean, what was the impression that, that you had of, of how far they are along with, you know, uh, construction choice and, and compound choice and all the rest of it? They're in um, a, a decent position. Um, there was one or two criticisms of, uh, of the allocation that they brought to uh, the Qatar test. Um, there was, uh, I think they brought four different front tires. Um, two of those um, they found out quite soon were not really appropriate for, for the track and for the conditions. So they were discarded quite quickly. And then riders were just left with two front, two different front tires. Um, some of those riders couldn't get one of the, the compounds to work at all. Um, so therefore they were only, they basically only had one front tire. Um, I think they maybe had four sets of those, uh, of those front tires. So they were quite limited in terms of um, how much testing they could do with with that just because four tires obviously over three days um, isn't going to, you know, you have to be, you have to quite spread that out quite evenly. Um, but I think it was interesting because some of the riders um, definitely favoured one of the, the softer compounds that Mitchell and brought, whereas others couldn't get that to work. And it's just going to be very interesting to see going into the race weekend um, what Mitchell and eventually uh, bring to Qatar uh, and what which riders um, will be suited to the compound that they bring. Were there differences in um, uh, within teams that one rider would like were liking was liking one tire and another rider was liking the other? I know um, uh, I know uh, Jorge was uh, Lorenzo was was preferring one particular tire, uh, but I'm not sure whether whether Rossi was on the same one or not. Yeah, no, I think um, I think Jorge liked um, well he preferred the, the softer tire, but he found that uh, like a lot of riders found that uh, on the final night when the the track conditions improved uh, that there was some graining with that tire. Um, he was the only one that could really consistently make the harder tire work. Um, I think someone at Midland told me that he was uh, on race pace somewhere between you know three, four, five tenths faster than everyone else in that harder tire, uh, which is quite uh, quite substantial. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that is quite substantial. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but the majority the majority of other riders um, preferred the the softer of those uh, of those front tires. Uh, the one thing that's interesting though about the tyres as well is when you talk to the riders they say that they don't really know what their teammates are, are doing at the moment they still haven't figured out exactly what's best for them so they're not even focusing on what teammates are doing like I think me and Neil were talking to Bradley about it in Phillip Island and he said you know we can't talk about what Rossi and Lorenzo are doing because I can't even focus on what Paul is doing on the other side of the box because We've all got such a big workload to get through just to understand the tyres. So even at this time, while some riders may well have found a tyre that they favour, other riders have spent the nine days just trying to figure out exactly what they need to do to get any of the tyres to work. So it'll only be once we get through a few rounds and they see the different allocations that are going to be in use that we really get a good understanding of who likes the harder tyre, who likes the softer tyre and different things like that. But the one thing that uh, kept cropping up time and time again was... The riders have said that the front is an awful lot better now compared to what it was last year and the steps that were made with it are actually a big improvement. The only thing is we saw a lot of crashes at Phillip Island on the last day as David mentioned and a lot of that came from track conditions came down, the the temperature dropped quite a bit on Friday actually and it just meant that uh, suddenly there was that lack of grip and a lot of the crashes all happened within an hour, hour and a half of each other. So it was just once the track temps came down. So right now it could be a case that the tyres are quite temperature dependent, but that'll probably change once guys get a bit more experience with them as well. 
Yeah, but that's a, that is a typical Phillip Island uh, behaviour because I remember that it's exactly like the race in two thousand and fourteen when they uh, when they debuted when Bridgestone debuted the asymmetric front, which was working sort of fine for the first sort of uh, uh, ten laps, and then the temperature drops by something like six or seven degrees. And um, it just stopped working. Everyone started. Uh, everyone started losing the front. So, uh, was there any talk about the uh, about the difference in the rear tyres as well? Because I mean, I heard a lot of people talking about the front tyres, but very little about the rear tyres. And it was the rear tyres which was much more of, a, of an issue last year. Yeah, most of the riders I talked to didn't uh, didn't really comment too heavily on the rear tyre. They said that uh, basically, regardless of which tyre they were using, it was quite a strong tyre. Just like what we've seen all along, just the characteristics of the Michelin mean that. That rear tire is very stable, gives good life, and uh, gives an awful lot of confidence. The limitation is the front tire still, and that's the way it's going to stay. Michelin have have always had a tire that is quite rear biased, and uh, there that's that's just going to continue to be the case. Teams are going to understand how to get more out of the front tire to give them a better feeling. But right now, none of the teams were overly concerned with the rear, other than Phillip Island. Everyone was concerned just with tire life. And Michelin limited everyone to 15 laps on the rear tire after what had happened to Baz, but that was the only that was the only issue that anyone had. And on the final day, I think uh, teams were allowed to run longer as well, so there was there was no issues at all with the rear. I mean, the question for me is uh, also because we've got the Spec Electronics, we've got the Michelins, um, uh, especially the Spec Electronics is, go- is going to have an effect on tyre life because uh, especially, I don't know, the, the past four or five years, almost all of the development of electronics was about uh, getting more and more life out of the rear tyre and how that affects the uh, uh, the, the performance of the tyre. So with just, you know, a, a choice of maybe one, two, uh, maybe three uh, settings for the uh, uh, for the electronics traction control and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the question is how what is tire degradation going to be like over uh, over race distance? Yeah, well, it seems it seems to be that that's one of the one of the positive things that riders have been uh, mentioning about the tires that they they do have a, a good durability and quite a decent a, a decent life. We saw um, so uh, several guys on the on the final two days of testing in Qatar do race simulations, and there was no drastic uh, drop off in times towards the end of those of those runs. Um, strangely, at Qatar, what riders were complaining about was um, the kind of difficulty in getting temperature into the tires, and therefore the difficulty in going fast when you fitted a new tire normally with you know a bridgestone if you fitted a new tire uh the chances were that you could you know you could go out and do a time attack straight away and that would be you know that would be when you could do your best lap time riders in Qatar were kind of finding that they would go out it would take maybe two or three laps to get up to a working temperature and then from there um you know they could they could go about setting a, a good time you, you heard several riders saying that it, they set their best times on after like 11 or 12 laps on the tire yeah right, yeah so obviously the rear is going to last but uh, um the question is how people will manage degradation but we'll we'll only really find that uh, out once we get to qatar and, and people start racing yeah, and this is basically what Michelin had told us right from the outset that this would be what would happen. I think, David, we we sat down with Michelin at uh, the Sepang test uh, last year and they said basically that their goal was that at the end of a race that you'd be able to set your fast times just like they want to be able to show that uh, there's long life in their tyres, that they're durable, that basically as a road user, you can expect that at the end of your tyre's life, it's still going to be able to give as much performance as what you get early in the life. So that's where we're seeing as well with the lap times. Every t- every test, guys are going out 
fastest times aren't being set as Neil said on the first lap they're being set on you know a 10 lap old tyre or 15 lap old tyre even and it's going to be interesting to see exactly how riders use their strategy in qualifying to see whether or not once we actually get to the white heat of qualifying whether or not guys are actually going to use a brand new tyre or something that's been scrubbed in a little bit because we could get to the stage where a new tyre is only fitted just for the start of the race to make sure that you've got like in Qatar enough tyre to do 22 laps but for the race or for qualifying we might see it that riders just take a tyre in you know FP3 or FP4 and they just give it you know, a heat cycle of four or five laps and it set that aside then for a qualifying tyre. Yeah, which is definitely going to be interesting. I mean, one thing that, that, that I found interesting was also the uh, uh, Sepang, Qatar and Philip Island, all three of them have really strange uh, uh, climatic conditions, if you like, because you've got the heat of uh, of Sepang, you've got the weird coolness of uh, of Qatar, you've got Philip Island where it, it's it can be hot or cold. Uh, Tony, you are always at trackside. You've been at trackside at all of these. I mean, um, how, how do you notice the? Uh, do you notice that when you're out when you're actually out shooting that the temperature and the conditions change a lot at these three uh, at these three circuits? And is it very different from a you know a normal European circuit, if you like? Obviously, Phillip Island is a track that um, can throw up any kind of condition at any time during the day. It's just the nature of, of where that of the geogra- geographical location of that particular track. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we we all know that there can be so many changes at Phillip Island. Uh, it's a pang, not so much. It it's just hot. And I know uh, at certain times of the year that the track temperature can to can increase. From a rider's perspective, but for for me as a photographer, it's just hot as balls the whole time of there. <laughs> so, I, I, and the longer I'm out there, the worse it feels. From that, that <laughs> not necessarily because it's got any hotter. It's just because I'm sweating significantly more than I was when I left the media centre. Thanks for the image, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, what about Qatar, though? I mean, it, 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 do, you, do you notice? Because uh, uh, during the Qatar test, obviously one of the big issues they talk about is the dew point, because I remember uh, a, a Qatar a test back in, uh, what, 2011, perhaps, at Qatar, where um, there were a lot of people crashing. Uh, the, the, the dew came early. It came before ten o'clock, and, and there were a lot of people crashing really, really heavily. Do you do you notice that as well that the that the, the temperature starts to drop? Uh, the two years I've I've covered the race out in Qatar, uh, I've not noticed significantly whilst I've been out working and, and shooting. But you do find when you come out to your car at the end of, at the end of the day, there there could be some condensation. So if if the car is experiencing that kind of issue then uh, I can't imagine what it must be like uh, for the riders when when that when that hits yeah like for me in the times I've been out in Qatar the one time that was actually noticeable that there was an awful lot of dew in the air was at the superbikes race in October once you get to that end of the year it's actually quite a different heat than we get when we're there for the GP and there is an awful lot more humidity in the air and you can actually feel it whereas whenever you're there for the actual GP you don't really notice a transition because it's so gradual, it's, and it, it would you'd only notice it if you came inside and then you went outside an hour later. You'd suddenly say, "Oh, it's you know, there's a little bit of a chill in the air, or there's a little bit of, of moisture in the air as well." So you don't really notice it whenever you're out continuously. That's why, like when a rider comes in, you know, they'll talk to their engineer for fifteen minutes and then they'll go to go back out, and suddenly they'll realise that the grips change completely just because you've hit that dew point. Yeah, that that this time of year. 
uh, like I say, in the two years that I've been there, the, the temperature is sort of mid-20s during the day, so it's not excessively hot, and it and it's drier rather than, uh, than humid, as Steve says, maybe later on in the year, so perhaps it could be more of an issue for the Superbike guys than it is uh, for MotoGP. We've we've been talking about the tyres. Um, um, maybe we should touch just a little bit about the electronics. I, I know you did mention them briefly, David, but uh, I know um, uh, the perhaps opinion amongst the riders uh, has changed quite a bit since you were in Sepang, David, to to where we are now. Where Neil has just come back from Qatar, and what sort of feedback he's been receiving from from the riders at the most recent test with regards to the where they are at with electronics now. Yeah, no, I basically don't need to repeat anything. Yeah, I've just, uh, I've said it all. <laughs> no, well, no, I, I didn't actually finish talking, by the way. <laughs> but did I just cut out there or really? Oh, well, okay, I was just disconnected. I don't know why. All right, okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, so we were talking about uh, which guys have the advantage. Okay, yeah, um, I would say... If we had to judge, um, you'd probably say that Ducati are just a little bit ahead of uh, of the rest. Um, I think the fact that you look at the at where the, the GP14.2s were in that test in Qatar, you got, had guys like Baz, Barbara, uh, Hernandez up at the sharp end. You also had Baz and, or, yeah, Baz and uh, Barbara in Phillip Island showing quite well. I think it shows that they perhaps have a little bit of an advantage, but I would say Yamaha aren't too far behind and Suzuki seem to have done, uh, have made you know notable strides as well. Yeah, how much of that was down to the uh, seamless uh, gearbox, do you think? For Suzuki? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to. It's. Um, I mean, I think the the the, the seamless gearbox that they were testing, um, basically up until uh, the second day in Qatar, was the the seamless gearbox, which had just seamless upshifts. It wasn't fully seamless, um, and that that seemed to be really positive, actually. Um, very so positive, in fact, that um, whenever they tested the full seamless, I think Alish tested it on the Thursday at Qatar and the Friday, um, Maverick just the Friday, I think, um, and Alish said that basically um, the, the 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 first kind of uh, seamless spec that they were using was actually probably better. Um, the, the fully seamless one that he tried uh, was a bit too aggressive, um, wasn't quite smooth. Um, he said it helped maintain the RPM all the way into the corner. Um, on corner entry, uh, but but yeah, I think they still have some work to do with the, the fully the fully seamless one, and they're they're hoping that that will be ready for the for the first race. Um, but they have the the kind of the, the seamless with upshifts there, which is still quite an improvement on what they were using last year. I suppose talking talking about um, the Suzuki Suzuki there kind of leads us nicely into what we want to talk about next, which is who was impressed so far this season, and we and um, perhaps to to make it a little easier we'll go through factory by factory or maybe we should start with suzuki then as we've just been talking about um the the improvements that they've been experiencing through the through the gearbox uh, and perhaps we could look at maverick vinales and uh, who has been in sensational form in in testing so far yeah like when you look at vinales he's been able to set fast times everywhere and he's just carried forward what he did last year and tony you know yourself like you went out and you were standing trackside you were looking at vinales and an awful lot of what he does on track is very similar to what you see from Lorenzo. It's huge amounts of corner speed, similar kind of lines. He doesn't have the same subtlety with the throttle yet, 
But riding style wise, you look at him and you look at Lorenzo and you can see an awful lot of similarities. And that's where right now, who've been the two guys that impressed most, Lorenzo and Vinales, because they were able to still generate the, the corner speed with these Michelin tires and Vinales the whole way through testing has looked really, really impressive. I think what's been what's been interesting from from the Suzuki perspective is on the other side of the garage, Elise looks like a, a guy who's struggling uh, at this point in testing what are your thoughts on that david yeah it's been it's also been interesting because uh, uh, it's been interesting in seeing the roles why these two different riders were were hired it's been really emphasized by testing um, maverick is the, the guy they hired to try and win races and Leish was the guy with experience that they want to uh, try and um, uh, use to develop the bike and Leish has spent a, uh, well <laughs> I don't want to put this too harshly, but uh, Alicia certainly spent some of his time complaining about, uh, you know, having to do a lot of the dirty work. Um, uh, Aleish, uh it's been Alicia who's been uh, made to test the two different chassis, who's been made to test the uh, fully seamless gearbox and all the rest of it. And Maverick has been able to concentrate on uh, trying to get a setup, trying to get his bike working. Uh, uh, he's been able to pick and choose almost when he decides to, to test the next evaluation so it's it's to me this has really made clear what what suzuki expects of the two different riders and it's entirely uh you know it's entirely reasonable you know vinales really does look like he he, he could be something very special uh and uh i mean espargaro is a fantastic rider uh, but you have to wonder whether he has, you know, the final that final tenth of a percent that 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 is the difference between a winner and and you know just a very very good rider. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly been interesting seeing the way that Suzuki have used them. Would you would you say with the progress that we've seen from obviously not only Suzuki themselves but with with Maverick that we could potentially see him on the podium at, at stages throughout the season. Well, I, I did a, uh, I did an analysis of the long runs uh, of uh, basically about the top eight and nine riders at, um, uh, at Qatar. And even though Maverick had a fantastic headline time, his overall time, uh, his long run, his race simulations were, were still a couple of tenths off of Lorenzo and Marquez. And what was really interesting was that even though it looked like Marquez was a little bit slower, when you look at, uh, his race pace his race pace actually looked to be a little bit stronger yeah that's similar to what we saw in Phillip Island as well David when you look at uh, Vinales's times for you know 10 consecutive laps or something like that you know there'd be headline grabbing times in it but there'd still be you know drops in within that as well and that's where he needs to make the step that's where Suzuki needs to make the step but at the end of the day if they can get to a point where you know they finish Qatar 10 seconds off the win that's a big step forward for them and even just to be able to set the quick times he's been doing over a single lap shows the progress that's been made with the bike. It still doesn't have the power of the other bikes, so it's still going to struggle off the line. The key thing for Vinales is that he's able to show on lap one that he's able to attack everyone, which he didn't do last year. That was the one weakness that he had, really. And he needs to be able to show that he can still fight through the field and set consistent times. I think it's easy to look at the three tests and say, Vinales, he's going to be able to you know, have a podium or he's going to be able to fight for things like that. But I think it's still asking too much of Suzuki just because, as you said, even with Honda struggling as much as they are, Marquez's times are still impressive. Yeah, especially over a race distance, especially is uh, over a duration. I mean, you'd expect... Um 
uh, Maverick to be up there sort of early maybe, but um, uh, at some point he's going to start struggling and lose, losing touch. I think, uh, Neil, you spoke to Aleish. What was what was Aleish's attitude? I mean, how did he see things? Yeah, I think on, on Friday night when we spoke to Ali, Aleish, you could see that he was trying to put a bit of a positive spin on things. Um, it was, he crashed twice in Qatar, I think the first time on Wednesday, uh, the second time on Friday. The, the crash on Friday was quite a big one, I think quite a big high side coming on to turn three. Uh, it was his eighth crash of the of the winter. Um, if you include his uh, his training crash that he had um, before or after the Valencia test, uh, he had a motocross accident. Um, and basically, I think his his crash on Wednesday at Qatar, you know, he, he sort of hurt his back. Um, I think it was an injury that first started when he fell at Le Mans last year and during qualifying. Then he had his training crash where he, I think he, he fractured one vertebrae in his back. Um, yeah. You could see him, you know being a little, you know, ginger as he walked around the paddock, you know, he definitely didn't look like he was comfortable. And it was... Ginger! <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, uh, yeah, you could tell he, he just didn't have the most confidence. He said he made quite a significant step on Friday, um, on Friday evening before the fall. Um, he was able to get the, the softer tyre working quite to his liking and he had made some uh, geometry changes which gave him a little bit more feedback with the Mitchell and tyres. Um, but uh, but yeah, overall, I think yeah, it, it can't help. Um, you know, I think he finished nineteenth overall in Phillip Island, or s- somewhere to that effect. And then he was quite far down in uh, in Qatar as well. And when he sees his teammate up, you know, so far ahead, um, it must be a little dispiriting. Um, so it'll be, I think, it'll be a, a difficult job for Elise this year, um, and it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose we should move on to uh, your thoughts now on the Yamaha factory guys and uh, the Tech 3 riders and uh, how pre-season has gone for them. Um, I think it's fairly obvious for for anybody looking in that Lorenzo looks extremely confident with the setup he's found at this stage. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly at uh, Sepang and Qatar, Lorenzo looks uh, confident, but he didn't look like anything like it at uh, at Phillip Island. Uh, did, Steve Neal, you both you were both at Phillip uh, Island. What was going on with uh, Lorenzo that he couldn't get the bike going? It was a little strange, yeah, um, because he was just complaining basically of uh, of excessive movement with the front tire mid corner. Um, he was saying he couldn't get any sort of um, any sort of stability, any sort of predictability with it. Um, and we all know that that Jorge depends so much on you know that kind of front stability uh, to be able to to cut those smooth lines that he likes to use so much. Um, and he just wasn't getting that uh, that same strong feedback that um, that he needs from the the front tire. And I think that was really uh, what was holding him back. Yeah, because when you went out and you, you looked at him from trackside, there's some sections of the track that he was really impressive at. But then when you went up to the hay shed and places like that, whenever he was pitching it in, you could really see a struggle for him. You could see that it was a difficulty for him just to have that confidence to carry the bike through there. So in the faster stuff, as Neil said, he didn't really look to have that stability. And it just wasn't the same as when you looked at him you know, last year during the race. But I think even with what happened to him in PI, he still looked good on the bike. He still looked strong. So, you know, I think that he didn't have the, he didn't have the times that sort of went with how he was actually riding as well. I think that uh, if you were to look at that's his weakest test and he was still able to set fast times, that it, it shows just how strong his winter was. I got a really strong impression that we could be in for t- in 2016 for something a lot like 2015, where, uh, you know, Lorenzo, it just 
completely blitzes people at some races and then um, sort of struggles at, struggles at others. Uh, so we could have a little bit of a, uh, again, that, that, that same sort of backwards and forwards of the championship where, where, it, where it ebbs and flows. Were those your impressions? Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that totally, actually, yeah, because the Rossi was just strong and consistent, you know, in all three tests. Um, in Qatar, he said that really they didn't have to make many changes at all to the bike for it to for it to be quick there. So we know he has a strong base setting. Um, he has also managed to adapt to it, and you know, I must say, I'm really quite quite amazed at um, just Rossi's ability to. You know, he's he's back there and he's you know he's in shape and he's kind of up for it again. And I thought really after after everything that had happened at the end of last year that he would really struggle to get to that stage. Um, but it appears that appears to be quite the contrary. He seems to be you know in good shape and pretty much ready to go racing. Um, and yeah, I agree with uh, with what you said, Lorenzo. You know, you could imagine him just blitzing some guys, clearing off into the distance of some tracks, um, and then not being so strong at others. Uh, what I think will be interesting is that a lot of riders have said, in Qatar particularly, that you know you can't. It takes a little bit of time to get heat into those uh, into those Michelin tires to get the best feeling out of them. We saw Lorenzo last year. Every race that he won was a lights to flag victory. Basically, those races were built on the foundation of having an explosive pace from the start, you know, being able to pull away maybe like a second or, or sometimes more in the first lap and, and just, you know, set a rhythm and be able to be out in the zone. If he can't get, um, or if he struggles to get those tires up to temperature at the start, he might be forced into taking a bit of a different approach to the races where he can't be quite so fast from the off and he might have to, you know, actually sit in behind riders for a change and then try and do some battling from behind, which could be could be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things which is sort of quite disappointing is in the analysis uh, sheets, which they which are, are up from the testing times, you can see every single lap time, but it's only a complete lap time. You can't see the partials. And so you can't see how quickly, uh, you know, how quickly it gets up to speed coming out of the pits, you know, or on those first laps or, or how that builds up sector by sector, Yeah, um, which is uh, which is a shame. But um, that's something we'll only find out at, at Qatar. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I'm that disappointed to miss out on sector times for 180 laps <laughs> over each of the three days by times that by three for the test times that by 22 for the riders now, I'm happy enough just to look at just overall lap times at the minute Dave lazy lazy journalism Steve <laughs> yeah exactly exactly you have to the, honestly you, you should be doing standard deviations on uh, on each particular sector time to try yeah, and get to uh, can let vari variations and all the rest of it you bloody TV people you have it too easy yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so should we move on and have a look at um, at Tech 3 um, and uh, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts I mean, some of the articles I've read it would appear as though at this stage Bradley is a happier rider than uh, than uh, his teammate Paul um, what are your thoughts on that? He might be a happier rider but Paul's been able to set faster times through the tests I think the, the key thing is when you look at uh, some of the statements we've seen from Paul, he's already trying to distance himself and, and almost give himself excuses for if something goes bad early in the season. I think there was something on motorsport.com or something like that where basically Paul was saying that um, you know Yamaha haven't kept their promises to him and it looks already that he just wants to he just wants to have a couple of ready-made excuses just in case the season doesn't start well and it's it's just when you compare that to what he said the whole way through last year, it's, you know, give me Michelin's and I'll be quick. And he hasn't really been saying that once he's actually got the Michelin's as well. So once we get to Qatar, the first few rounds of the season, 
I think when we look at the dynamic within that team, it's going to be really interesting just to see exactly how Paul is working with the rest of the crew. Because we saw last year, the the steps that he made last year were all backward steps. We saw him come into the pit box and he'd be punching the tank of the bike and he'd be, you know, visibly upset down in the garage. Whereas, um, you know, the first year he was laughing and smiling and even down in Phillip Island at the test, you didn't really see that uh, relaxed nature back with Paul. It still seemed like there was a fair bit of tension in the box. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly all of the uh, uh, all of the media interviews I've seen don't make it sound like he really sees a long term future with Yamaha or if he if he does, that he's certainly not um, uh, trying to suck up to uh, to, to Lynn Jarvis. But then again, um, that sort of strategy can work two different ways. Sometimes it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. <laughs> yeah. What I will say about Paul, though, is um, his race simulation on Friday was actually quite impressive. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it compares to, to some of the other top eight riders or whatever, but, you know, he was quite consistent in in those times. Um, and that was when he, he basically had been saying that he, he couldn't find... Um, a lot of rear grip with the Michelin tires in, in Qatar. You know, what they have been known for up until now has been their excellent rear grip. He said that didn't quite find that uh, there. So with, with a bike that was uh, fairly loose and wasn't, you know, gripping the asphalt in the way in which he likes or in the way in which he wanted, um, he was still able to be quite consistent towards the end of his race run, which um, which I thought boded quite well. Yeah, but I think uh, Bradley only did a race sim at... Um uh, it's a pang, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that was quite a good racing, but then again, it was the very start. Uh, you know, it, it was his first test, and uh, and there's been a lot has changed since then. So it, it's really difficult to make any kind of comparison between the two. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's why we need to wait just until we get the first few rounds under the belt, and then we're able to actually see where everyone stands. And it it will be once we get back to Europe, the first three races could go anywhere and uh, you could see a lot of surprises in them and then once we get back to Europe we'll get a bit more stability and that's where we'll be able to get a clear picture and that's that's the thing that's interesting about this season and a big challenge for everyone is that the waters are very muddied and no one has any answers now at this point because everyone's been working on different programs everyone's been been working towards different goals and testing and it's only once we get to the first practice on Thursday night in Qatar that everyone's actually at the same racetrack at the same time working towards the same goal which is just being able to win on sunday so you know it's it 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 is a case of in the winter tests right now we need to take everything with a pinch of salt and just wait and see when we've actually got some some more data yeah okay um so we'll we'll move on and um and have a look at ducati who who as a factory must be extremely pleased with with how uh, pre-season has gone with not only with the with their factory bikes, but with their uh, satellite teams, and also with the the teams riding the 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 fourteen point twos, and and of course we had the the great sight of seeing Casey Stoner on track and Sepang, who just seemed to settle back into the groove nicely and was immediately quick. Yeah, about Casey Stoner. Well, the the thing that surprised me most about Casey Stoner is that Ducati can't read the bleed regulations <laughs> and yeah. uh, ended up booking a track which they uh, presumably they will have to pay for, and it's not cheap. Um, uh, only to have their test cancelled because it's within fourteen days of a uh, of an event. But uh, the uh, ne- well, yes, that it, it never put down to was it never put down to uh, uh, never assigned to malice what you could put down to incompetence, and it seems fairly <laughs> obvious where this one comes down. That was that was a little bit strange but um 
uh, yeah, I mean the the the, the GP16 seems to be seems to be working well. GP15 seems to be working absolutely fantastic with uh, Danilo fast in Sepang and uh, Scott really quick at both uh, Phillip Island and and especially at um, um, at, at Qatar. Uh, the 14.2 is doing is doing really well. Uh, yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be a strong year for Ducati. Uh, Steve or Neil, when you were uh, down in Australia, did you? Uh uh, and Sapai, did you get a chance to speak to Casey at all about uh, about the Ducati? Yeah, I was talking to Casey down in Phillip Island for a while, more so just about um, how things were going in relation to working with Ducati. And he said that just being able to be back in, in the factory and be involved and you could see just how important it was for him and I'm sure it was the same in Sepang David just actually being able to get out on track and being able to talk to everyone within the team and have have that listen to and be valued was important to him and he actually said that one of the the big things for him was during the test anytime the track went quiet he was actually worried about whether it was Davi or Ian One that had crashed because he looks at them and, and he sees them as, as his two guys that he needs to try and, and build up and he said that uh, you know he can now understand how worried Adriana got whenever he'd be out on track, <laughs> you know. And I think uh, I think it was just, it was strange just to see it, you know, a, a double world champion, one of the greatest riders ever. Just thinking in terms of, you know, I was actually really worried whenever uh, those guys went out on track. Yeah, it's funny because he has said in the past that uh, one of the things he'd like to get into uh, get into was coaching, and I never really took that very seriously before. But now you sort of think, well, yeah, the role that he has now uh, is in you know, a half half well uh, uh, maybe three quarters tester and, and one quarter sort of coach and mentor and that's uh it, it it it's a really interesting role for stoner i think yeah i think it's perfect for him as well because it means that he can test the bike because like, i firmly believe casey is one of those few riders that just getting out on the bike is enough for him you know he clearly doesn't want to race a full season that's fair enough uh, you can understand the the requirements for traveling having to talk to us and you know different things like that like it's, it makes it where he doesn't want to do a full season this rule means that he can still test the bike if he decides he wants to do a wild card there's always going to be a bike available for him and it will be a one-off or you know two races and then that's it he's not going to do a full season but it's just whenever you see the respect that ducati have for him and also the respect that he has for ducati it's it seems very different to what we saw whenever he was with Honda as their test rider, where basically they had probably the the most naturally talented rider I've ever seen available to them to test, and they didn't use him, and I think that really frustrated him, and that that meant that you know going to Ducati wasn't that big a step for him, and now he sees the the benefit of that. Even you know we saw him laughing and joking in the paddock with everyone from Ducati, and you know even whenever he turned up at. Uh, you know, the Sepang test last year, you know, he had his couple of days on the RC, but we didn't really see the same interaction with everyone within Honda. And I think that was that was interesting for me just to see how he was working with the team. It was interesting in Phillip Island also to see um, how much time he was spending in the garage of uh, of not only the factory team, but also the, the Pramac guys. Um, he was down there in the box with Petrucci and with Redding, um, you know, whenever those guys were, were coming in um, after a bit of time out in the track. And I was kind of speaking to Petrucci about this and he was saying that, you know, it was just fantastic that Stoner was there really 
like intently listening to his feedback and trying to give him like pointers on you know things that he would do um, at, at certain at certain points around the track. Um, and then Casey was all like very very eager to hear the kind of feedback that Danilo was given. And I'm sure I think it was the it was the same with Reading. Um, so you know from that you can see that this is something that Casey is is really thinking about. Um, you know it's not just showing up to kind of you know have his photo taken and um, and make it, made it be known that he's still fast. He is genuinely there trying to gain as much information as possible uh, to try and absorb as much information as possible from the riders and to basically you know try and make this work try and make the, the, you know the Ducati project move forward yeah I thought it was pretty cool as you said Neil just seeing him actually work with the other riders and you know t- talk them through what he was doing on the bike and how he'd approach different sections of the track but from what I heard he still wouldn't tell anyone how he was so fast through turn three <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those secrets. That's one of those secrets that goes with him to the grave. I think. Uh, but before before we go on to to, to to talk to talk about Honda, perhaps, uh, I'd just be interested to get your thoughts on if you think we could see a Ducati win a race this year. They obviously came close on a, a number of occasions last last year, and do you think we might see them win one this this year? And 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 who might it be? Might it even be one of the satellite guys? Yeah, I think that I think we'll see them win a race this year. Last year, as you said, Tone, they came very close to winning races, but they didn't really have that uh, just that final bit of pace. Whereas I think right now that bike is working well for all the teams. Like we've seen the GP14 work well, the 15s working very well. Scott Redding has looked really, really comfortable on that bike right from the outset. I think even when myself, yourself, and Neil were down at the Hareth test after uh, just before christmas you know we could see how relaxed he was working with the team how well he was adapting to the bike and he's carried that forward all the way through the winter tests and i was talking to him for quite a while on the final day at phillip island and he looked really ready and confident for the start of the season and he was just keen just to get to qatar and to start the year already and that was with another three days of testing left david what are your thoughts on ducati's chances Uh, i mean of course. Well, yes, I think they. I think they have to win a race this year. Uh, it's as simple as that. And I think uh, the uh, because obviously the the uh, both contracts are up at the end of the two both factory contracts are up at the end of this year, and uh, so the rider who wins uh, who wins a race gets gets an automatic uh, factory contract. I would think uh, at the moment it looks uh, of the factory riders it looks much more like it's going to be Ian, Ian Oni rather than Dovizioso. Dovizioso really still seems to be struggling. Um, uh, struggling with his times and, and struggling with, um, um, uh, yes, yeah, struggling with tyres. He's not doesn't seem to have the pace of Iannone. Uh Reading has just looked really, really strong. Uh, Petrucci is hard to say because he's been injured. Um, uh, you know, he broke his hand obviously at Phillip Island. Uh, th- that was a that was a big setup when he was quick in Sepang. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and again, uh, one of the riders who's really impressed me has been Hector Barbara. You know, Barbara was always. Uh, the the bloke who was only there because he could afford to pay, but yet you put him on a decent bike and you know with on a on a more level playing field, and he's much much closer to the front. And Baz too strong. Yeah, Barber actually looks an awful lot right now like he did in 2012 on the on the uh, Aspar Ducati as well. He looks confident on the bike and he looks like he can actually get some good results on it. I'm still very wary to say he's going to have a strong race pace and be able to string together 22 laps. 
but just on the basis that that GP15, uh, GP14 has already had time with the unified software, its big weakness was being able to get the bike to turn in. The Mitch then seemed to have helped that just from having such a positive rear end that he looks strong already on that bike and I think he could he could have some good results at the start of the year when you look at the guys on that 14 you know Baz has had quick times Barber has been quick and Yanni Hernandez has, has had quick times as well so it's clear that that 14 bike is actually working quite well from the outset so you know whether it's the electronics whether it's being able to use the tyres better it clearly looks like it's actually capable of strong results this year yeah and just looking at uh, going back to the, the factory guys there I mean um, I'm really intrigued really intrigued to see just how fast Davizioso will be at the first race because I know you were saying that Dave that his time he's been struggling to you know kind of be as fast as some of the other Ducati guys throughout testing I think in Phillip Island on the second day he said that he had really made he'd started to make giant strides forward with uh, with understanding how the tyres work and understanding how they needed to be used in order to be fast um, we all know that he's a guy that breaks very late and the Michelins maybe uh, shouldn't be used um, in the kind of style of Bridgestones where you're so aggressive with the front brake, brake um, and Davizioso took some time to figure that out but really from the second day in Phillip Island I noticed that he was very positive um, going into Qatar as well um, he, he did a race simulation on the second night and it was it was, it was was quick it was fast it was consistent and Davizioso you know was speaking confidently whether he'll have the pace to you know, winner winner race. I'm not sure, um, but I think it will be interesting to see just how just how quick he can be and whether he can be as fast as he and this year. Okay, okay, guys, we'll 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 move on to to Honda uh, and the uh, talk about the five the five guys riding uh, Hondas next year and and start with uh, with uh, Repsol Honda and uh, your thoughts on how their preseason has gone. Uh, well, if if the preseason had ended, maybe like two and a half hours before it did we would have been saying that it was total disaster it was an absolute <laughs> shower of insert expletives here um, but uh, but somehow mark marquez seemed to pull something out of the hat right towards the end of friday evening and yeah and he said that he made a huge step in in terms of setup uh i'm i'm not sure exactly whether mark did make a massive setup change or whether it was he just it was just him refinding some of the confidence that he clearly was lacking all through Wednesday and Thursday. Um, he was able to get a toe um, from Lorenzo and he kind of, you know, said that, look, this is just, I wouldn't normally do this, but this is the situation we find ourselves in. I just needed to kind of sit in behind someone and try and see the lines and see where I was fast, where I was slow. Um, and Lorenzo was uh, only too happy to kind of t- like the toe him around. And... Um, yeah, yeah, and Marquez actually set some some fantastic times, and it really was quite a contrast to what he was saying, what the rest of the Honda riders were saying all through that test, um, where they were really, really struggling, even more so than in, uh, well, you know, uh, as much as they were in, in Sepang, it seemed. Yeah, like, I, I I wouldn't be keen to run out and put my mortgage on uh, Mark winning in Qatar or being able to be a, a title winner, but we did definitely see that there was a, a lot of progress made from you know, even just as you say, Neil, in that last two, three hours of the of the tests. But when you look at Pedroza, he's down bottom half the timesheets. The the bike is still is still a struggle, and Mark's able to clearly get more out of it than anyone else right now. But whether or not you can do that for forty five minutes, eighteen times a year, that's what the challenge is. Because for for Honda, it's not good enough to have a bike that's capable of winning. You know, four or five rounds. They need to be able to go out and win a championship and I, I don't see them being able to do that right now and that's because when you look at uh, 
the VDS bikes, when you look at Pedroza, you know, Cal's had some good lap times, but it's only been Mark that's been able to string together like that race run in Qatar. But in Phillip Island and Sepang, I think we saw, you know, the bike is good, but it's dependent on a lot of circumstances being in its favor. And I, I, I don't see anything that's going to change that between now and the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was impressed by the... Uh, by the lap times that Cal Crutchlow set, uh, but when you start looking at his race pace, his race pace is pretty terrible. Uh, but then the trouble with Cal is his race pace is always like that. When you go through all the practice timesheets, look at what he's doing. He's absolutely all over the place. He's not like um, uh, if you look at the, especially say FP4 of Lorenzo, Lorenzo will go out and he'll do 12, 15 laps, bang, 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 right on the money. Um, all within, you know, a, a tenth of each other. Uh, Crutchlow will go out and do two, three runs and it'll be, uh, you know, one lap will be really close to a lap record pace and the next one will be two or three seconds off the pace and he's really, really inconsistent. So it's really difficult to say anything about it. Um, Danny, I mean, everyone was expecting Danny to do really well, but uh, but but he just really hasn't uh, gelled. Well, I don't know what he hasn't gelled with, but there is something where he, he, he just can't get the bike uh, to work. Uh, Jack Miller, it's hard to say anything about because you know he, he's still suffering with these uh, with, with a with an ankle injury that uh, that's still healing. Tito's a rookie and Tito is a slow learner. Uh, Tito needs patience. I mean, Tito's you know he's, he's I, I think Tito's going to be sort of you know outside the top fifteen for the first uh, first half of the season. Then we'll see we'll see what happens after that. Um, which again leaves only Mark, who's really capable of uh, getting the most out of it. And as you said, uh, Steve, I mean, the, the, he said that they that they turned the bike upside down. They made some big cha- big setup changes, but we don't know whether they made sort of big setup ch- uh, change or whether it was the big setup changes to the bike that worked, or as Neil sort of hinted, whether it was the the nut between the handlebars, which was the uh, most important component that got tweaked. That that Mark really believes he can be fast again. Yeah, I think it it, it goes back to what we saw last year. Honda weren't able to solve the bike and until they prove that they can actually find a solution that's consistently working on a variety of different tracks, we have no reason to actually have faith in them that they've done it. So I think it's it's going to take, again, like I said earlier on, it's going to take these first three flyaways. It'll take us getting back to Europe. And and if, you know, after Le Mans, we've seen a few strong results from Mark, you know, a couple of wins and different things like that, at podiums in the other races, that he's close to Lorenzo, then yeah, they've they've solved the bike. But I'm sitting on the fence until they actually go out and do that. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the, the trouble is we have uh, Qatar where, you know, the Honda was, was pretty decent last year. Uh, we have Argentina where, again, the Honda could have been fast until um, uh, uh, Mark tried to uh, try to win it when he couldn't. Uh, and we had, well, Austin where the Hondas have, have just blown the rest of the uh, the field away for the par. Well, ever since, basically ever since the track was open. So it's not really, uh, it, it's not really good comparison. Yeah, I think um, on Thursday at Qatar, uh, we were speaking to Cal and we were asking him just about the kind of predicament that Honda had found them, the Honda riders found themselves in. And he was saying that genuinely this could be a year where he cannot compare his results uh, 
to guys on other bikes, to other satellite riders, he was thinking that he, he's potentially only going to be able to compare himself to other Honda riders. That was the kind of situation that he was in. He was almost saying, like, don't look at the results. Just look at where I am compared to Mark and Danny. Um, and he was saying that perhaps this is going to be a season where, where it's like that, which was quite uh, quite telling, I thought, really, just as the as the how bad the situation was on Thursday. Um, but, yeah, uh, there seemed to be something um, something found on the final day. I don't think it was anything massive, uh, massively dramatic with the setup, and Cal, Cal said that as well. Um, but it'll just be interesting to see how Marquez approaches this, because last year we saw at the start of the year when the bike wasn't working well, Marquez still had the same approach as the year before in 2014, just basically try and win or crash, you know, and, and really not change that approach at all. In Valencia at the end of last year, he said that that wasn't the correct approach, and if he had basically just rode and t- like collected a fourth place here, a fifth place there, maybe a third in another in another race, then he could have been in the championship fight come you know midway through the season. And I think it'll be really interesting to see after the first, the first three races that if the Honda isn't capable of of winning races, then what will Mark do? Yeah, the the one question I have about Mark, um, uh, well, Marquez and Rossi is at Sepang they sort of circled around each other and just sort of uh, uh, ignored each other. Uh, it's going to be a big issue these two again on the on track. I think they encountered uh, each other a few times at Philippi and maybe it's a, it's a pang. Did you get uh, any sense that the atmosphere is, uh, well, not so much, I mean, obviously they're not going to be, you know, round each other's for tea, but they might uh, perhaps, you know, turn the loathing down a little bit. Did you get an idea that, that, that they would be a, a little bit more professional in their relationship in the last, especially at Qatar, Neil? Um I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, uh, perhaps in public, there there may be uh, they may be slightly more professional towards each other. But I did hear a story from from a rider who I won't name um, at Sepang, um, who basically said that he found himself on track at the end of the third day of testing, um, basically alone with Marquez and Rossi. And um, yeah, from what it from what he said, there was still quite a bit of. Uh, uh, you know, of uh, bad feeling uh, between the two uh, from their actions on the track. I think um, Rossi was going to do a practice start. Mark pulled up alongside him and just looked across and stared intently when Rossi just, you know, was kind of focusing on his own thing and pulled away. But Marquez had basically just like pulled up beside him and just stared at him just to try and, I don't know, make him aware that he was there, I guess. Um, so if these kind of things are still going on on track... Maybe they'll be more professional in uh, in public, but I still think we can assume that there's uh, a lot of ill feeling there. Yeah, because in that story, what happened as well was Mark stopped in the practice in the practice start zone and stared over at Rossi. And then Rossi makes his practice start. He goes and then Mark just goes away like he's down at the shops and there was no effort to make a practice start. He was sitting there just <laughs> outside Valentino. And it, it's the key thing. It's what we've seen time and time again with Mark. He's a really good wind up mar- merchant. He wants to get underneath your skin. Everything he does over the course of a race weekend is to get that mental edge over you. And this was just another example of it. And, you know, he'll say all the right things in public this year in all likelihood. You know, I, I don't think we'll see any of it really boil over early in the year. But once they're out on track together, like the two boys, they'll be right back down to their basic instincts on it. And neither of them are going to give an inch. Neither of them are going to cede any sort of psychological ground to the other. And we'll see lots of things like this through the year. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't intending on going to Qatar um, uh, this year, but I keep on sort of like thinking, well, that first press conference, that's got to be... Uh, because you know they're going to be in there um, uh, together for the first time. And so... so 
you know, keep on looking at flights thinking, well, maybe, maybe if I, you know, scrimped and saved a little bit, I could go. But uh, uh, the thought of the work rhythm at, uh, uh, at Qatar, going, going to sleep at six o'clock every morning, um, it remains entirely unappealing. Mm. It doesn't work great for the way, for the way you work. Does no, it, does it? No, it, no, it, it it's great doesn't. for us photographers. We love it, but yeah. I could understand why uh, it wouldn't appeal to you with the way you work. Yeah. Yeah, that lack, lack of red wine, Dave, that'll be what <laughs> bad, for, bad, bad for my inspirational juices. That's yeah. right. That's right. I, su- I suppose we should uh, we should wrap this up by just uh, f- uh, talking briefly about Aprilia. There's not there's not a lot to talk about because they only uh, unveiled the new bike uh, in Qatar. Uh, and I, I'm going to be the first person to say here that I think the colour scheme is horrific. <laughs> And it looks like they designed it after a heavy night out on the beer. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you don't race a motorcycle because of the colour scheme. So it'd be interesting to see uh, your thoughts on uh, the early signs of the uh, the this year's machine there from Aprilia. All I could say so far is it looks horrific, sounds fantastic. So go on, Neil. <laughs> yeah, and I think it I think it actually looks quite good. It's just that the tank... I think it looks all right. It's just the, the tacky Piaggio bags that they've got across the, the side of the ferry and that really does it an injustice. I think other than that, it looks, I think it looks all right. Neil, like colorblind Morris. I think it looks pretty cool. Calling into question your tastes here, Neil. <laughs> the bike actually looks quite well. It's, it's a well-designed bike, but delivery is just horrendous looking, as Tony said. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it, the key thing for them is that they have made a lot of improvements on the bike. When you look at it, it's very different to last year's bike. They've moved the engine, and the engine's an awful lot smaller, and they've cleaned up an awful lot of the packaging, and it actually looks like a GP bike now, as opposed to last year, which... You know, it looked like a super bike that had been sort of shrunk down a little bit because that's basically all it was. Whereas now they're actually at a starting point where they're able to to look to move forward with the bike. But it's it is a case of how high can Aprilia actually aim this year? You know, yeah. when you look at it, they're not going to be able to compete with the Hondas, like the you know the VDS Hondas and teams like that. They're not going to be able to compete with the Suzuki's so it's it's going to be a big struggle for them they're looking at basically probably the GP14 twos that's what that's what they're trying to compete with and it's going to take them a long time before they can actually really make a big step forward but that's what this year is for you know they've they've made a big investment for the future they've they've signed up Sam Lowe's three-year contract you know they're they're looking at, at the long-term plan and that's where you know this year comes in we'll see what what progress they make through the year because I'm sure that uh, you know by the time we get to you know, Catalonia or something like that, that's whenever they'll actually have, you know, big upgrades brought onto the bike and that's where we'll see, you know, a step forward being made. Yeah, yeah. I was speaking to uh, Romano Alpesiano, uh, the the head of, of Aprilia, Aprilia's racing department um, on Friday at Qatar. Um, and he was saying some interesting things. He was basically, you know, aware that he thinks that uh, the first three races, let's say, will be will be more or less a test for the for the Aprilia. Um, by the time they get to Jerez, he hopes that they can actually start focusing on racing and getting some results. Um, and basically, he said their aim is to, by half season, to be fighting for the top 10 places um, with Bautista and Bradle there. Which, you know, um, it seems like it could be quite difficult, but he was quite adamant that if they could, by the end of the season, if they could consistently be fighting for the top 10 places, then they could make that next step over uh, the following winter um, to be then maybe in the fight for top six places in 2017, um, which, which yeah, seems like a, a, you know, a reasonable goal. Did you get to talk to uh, either Bautista or Bradl at all? 
yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I got the chance to speak to Bautista. Um, just you know, I guess it's it's you know it's you give the feedback that, that you know that any rider I guess would give uh, when you know when a rider's trying a bike for the first time, just that it was inconsistent he was in and out of the pits big delays you know he would go out one thing would work well another thing would wouldn't work so well they would have to pull in take maybe an hour or so to fix that problem then go back out again and you know so the process goes on and on but he said his initial impressions were quite good uh it was lighter it was um you know it was it was definitely easier to turn uh that bike has a counter-rotating crankshaft this year actually um in the engine so the engine has uh, a bit more punch <laughs> Can I just interrupt there? Because I keep on seeing lots of people saying that there's, uh, you know, all these bikes got counter-rotating cl- uh, crankshaft. Did um, did Romano Albesiano tell you this? Or did you hear this from another journalist? He did indeed. He confirmed that. Yep, yep. Oh, right. Okay, right. No, that's that's that that's that's really interesting because normally there's lots of them who, who won't tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, I was quite surprised that he was uh, he was so openly talking about it. And, and he actually said that that was the reason why the project is so far behind, because it took them quite a while to decide um, to decide whether to use this uh, this engine design, this engine configuration. And it was only quite a long, quite late into last season where they, they realized that it was worth uh, worth taking a punt on. And basically from there, um, there were delays. Um, but uh, but Romano was kind of trying to break it down into layman's terms. You know the benefits of having this counter-rotating crankshaft, and he was saying that basically it helps with the with the turning. You can be more precise um, if you look at the turning. Uh, if you look at the the part of the corner that you want to be in, um, with last year's bike. It was just very difficult because of the weight, because of the structure of it. It was just quite difficult to make that turn automatically. Um, he said this year you're able to be a lot more precise with the turning of the bike. So, yeah, so I guess that's uh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. I mean, I understand the theory. The theory is basically the uh, the, the gyroscopic forces of the uh, uh, of the crankshaft because it's spinning very, very fast um, uh, counteract to a certain extent the gyroscopic forces of the wheels. And so it sort of, it, it does make it a little bit more agile. But um, uh, it's the first time I've actually heard a... a Manufacturer confirm they uh, w- what direction because if you ask if you ask Honda anything about uh, which direction the, the crankshaft is is spinning they will laugh in your face. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, and Honda's new engine, of course, I think has that design as well, right? Yeah, uh, well, that's what they say. <laughs> you seem quite sceptical there. Yeah, David. well, if I but, but, as soon as I get to see the blueprints, uh, and just before I'll believe it, right up until then, and just before someone from HRC comes around and uh, puts my feet in concrete and throws me in a very, very deep lake. That's a, neither <laughs> of those things are likely to happen. <laughs> <in LA>. <laughs> 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 okay, Jen, well, that that seems like the the ideal place to wrap up for our, our pre season review. Um, I'd just like to, to thank you all for, for your time. Thanks, uh, Tony. And uh, yeah, and thank we'll, you, Tony. We'll finish, no problem. And we'll, we'll just uh, finish with a, a reminder to our listeners that uh, if they are listening to us on iTunes, to, to please leave us a review as it greatly helps other listeners find the show. Thank you very much. I would say it would, it would seem that they would have a little bit of an advantage, yeah. Um, I would say Ducati are probably still just a little bit ahead. Um, oh, oh, oh we've lost. Seems to be having um, some technical problems. Ducati's yeah, we've lost Neil, but very, he's probably still well talking, indeed. so that's I okay. I think the fact that we're seeing guys like Baz, Barbara, uh, even Hernandez. At the le- oh, he's gone. His picture has now gone completely. Busy, it says. Yeah, he's busy talking to us. Think Thinks he is. He's probably sitting there chatting away. To himself. <laughs> <laughs>
Maybe that maybe that was it because he had to go completely hands free. 